Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I guess I should say good afternoon and good evening and good morning, as I understand we are being joined by participants from all over the globe, which is uh, something that really pleases my colleagues and me. Uh, I am joined here at the virtual dais by my colleagues, Simon Lester and Inu Manik. They are both at their secretive remote locations. And uh, we're gonna talk to you today about trade in a pandemic, traditional issues, new concerns, and optimal policy responses. For those of you who may be inclined to share your thoughts about this event uh, on social media, please do so. And please use the hashtag uh, Cato Trade. That would be pound sign, Cato Trade, one word, uh, capital C, capital T. So we're gonna talk briefly about some of the problems that we're facing. Uh, and then uh, we'll get into a discussion of some of the solutions to the problems that, that we've laid out. We're gonna talk about tariffs, this quest for supply chain repatriation, export restrictions, problems related to uh, patents and, and regulatory barriers to trade. So let me just set the table with a little discussion about where trade is right now. Um, last year, we had imports, uh, trade was about $42 trillion, uh, according to the World Trade Organization. Unfortunately, the, the WTO is estimating that trade in 2020 is going to fall off a cliff somewhere between 13% and, and 32%. To put dollar figures to that, that's about $5.5 trillion to uh, thir uh, about $13 trillion. And to put that in perspective, the most optimistic end, the $5.5 trillion. U.S. trade with the world, all goods and services, exports and imports last year was $5.6 trillion. So the rosiest projection from the WTO for 2020 is that it would be 2019 trade as if the United States didn't exist, or as if the United States were just existing in autarky, or if uh, the president of the United States had his dream to isolate the United States from the rest of the world come true. Um, so if you're more interested in uh, a rosier projection, uh, we've got a, the, uh, uh, I think it was the OECD yesterday, uh, or no, I'm sorry, the IMF is projecting an 11% contraction in trade. So we've got that. So why is trade collapsing? Well, because supply and demand have collapsed. Output has collapsed. There was trade was sort of on a downward trajectory in 2019, uh, possibly because of the trade war between the United States and China, between the United States and other countries uh, and rising protectionism in other countries as well. But I don't think that the, those factors have much explanatory value for what we're about to see happen to trade in, in, in 2020. So um, uh, let's, uh, let me say a few words about trade in, in, and tariffs in medical products. Global trade in medical products, as defined by the World Trade Organization, was about $2 trillion last year. And uh, the WTO did an analysis and, and put, uh, put imports uh, in, into four different baskets, medicines, medical supplies, medical equipment, and personal protective equipment found that about 60% of these products were in severe shortage. But it also found that most countries impose tariffs on imports of these vital necessities. Uh, the average applied tariff was about 4.8%, which actually is less than the average applied tariff for all uh, non-agricultural goods. Um, but uh, again, uh, these tariffs didn't cause the, uh, aren't a cause of the, the decline in trade, but they could be part of the solution. Uh, getting rid of these tariffs could help uh, uh, with medical supply shortages and would facilitate a faster recovery of the economy. 
And the good news on that front is that it was reported uh, just this week, I guess it's being updated continuously by Global Trade Alert, uh, that 79 countries, I think this was on Monday, uh, have actually lowered their tariffs in the past few weeks in response to what's happening. Um, the, uh, in the, the United States is uh, uh, not one of those countries, however, <laughs> that is lifting tariffs. Um, we, uh, our, our tariffs are not particularly high on medical products. Um, in fact, um, they're under 1%. And the reason that they're not even closer to zero is because of tariffs that we're applying on China. Uh, as part of this Section 301 trade war, uh, tariffs on China came to about 6.9%. And getting rid of those tariffs will help too. Uh, I don't know that it's going to make that big of a dent. I think what would make much more sense would be for the, the U.S. government to agree to forgive all tariffs uh, on products coming in right now. Last year, the Customs Service collected $72 billion worth of uh, import tariffs. Uh, that amounts to six billion a month for U.S. importers who would be in a better position to keep business operations running and keep people on payrolls. Uh, so uh, I wish that they would give some consideration to that. There were reports a few weeks ago that that the administration was considering suspending tariff payment for a little while at least, but I think that fell by the wayside. Uh, there is just too much countervailing uh, pressure against this this need to liberalize, and and that brings me to my next concern, which is. Uh, the momentum we're seeing in the United States, as well as Europe and elsewhere, uh, to um, repatriate medical supply chains in the United States. A lot of people are under the belief that we're too dependent on foreigners for critical supplies, especially China, uh, and that we should make, a move, make moves toward greater self-sufficiency. Um, let me just say, among all countries, the U.S. is among the least dependent on, on foreign markets and on foreign sources. Uh, U.S. imports plus exports over GDP amounts to about 26%. Uh, for China, it's about 37%. For the whole world, minus the United States and China, it's about 60%. So we are less dependent. We are, as far as I'm concerned, sufficiently patriated uh, in our supply chains, and we do need to, to diversify more uh, and, and move outward with it. Um, but I am in favor of diversification. It's a prudent policy to have. We shouldn't put all of our eggs in one basket. We shouldn't depend on one source. Uh, we should we should uh, diversify our sourcing so that we have some products coming in from foreign sources, some from specific foreign sources, uh, some domestically produced, and we should try to uh, make space for a realistic domestic supply, uh, a rainy day supply stockpile, uh, and, and, and tap into those kinds of things. So, one thing that's coming up in this discussion about China uh, is how actually how dependent we are. Um, there's we, I see government officials and people testifying before congressional committees and others bandying about these numbers that we are dependent on China for 95 percent of our pharmaceuticals or, you know, 85 percent of our antibiotics. And let's put this in perspective uh, on some products. We are uh, dependent, more dependent on China than on others. Uh, but let, let me just recite a few a few numbers for you here. Um, antibiotics, Americans, uh, U.S. imports of antibiotics from China account for 38% of our imports of China. Heparin, 43%. Acetaminophen, 63%. Vitamin C, 74%. Ibuprofen, 76%. 
hydrocortisone, 92%. Now, uh, there are a lot of these medicines we produce at home. So we're looking at numbers that are just import shares. If you look at overall pharmaceutical imports, which would be everything in what's called chapter 30 in the harmonized tariff schedule, every 10 digit code that starts with a three zero is considered a pharmaceutical product. You add up the value of that for, for uh, 2019, it's $132 billion. Only 1.2% of our pharmaceuticals come from China. Then we hear people push back saying, well, it's the ingredients that we're worried about because China is selling ingredients uh, to other countries and those countries are making pharmaceuticals. Well, there aren't any major countries that have a huge market share, Ireland, perhaps uh, a few other European countries, but uh, the exports that China sends to us of ingredients all fall under, mostly fall under what's called organic chemicals in the harmonized tariff schedule, chapter 29. And in that case, China accounts for 15.6% of our imports. So that's, you know, a $49 billion. And going back to pharmaceuticals, just to close this out, uh, even though we imported $132 billion worth, domestic production uh, is at least, in 2019, was at least $279 billion. So imports account for a pretty small share of domestic consumption. So I'm all for figuring out the best way to do this and, 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 and identifying areas where we may be vulnerable. Certainly people are aware of vulnerabilities, particularly you know, becoming reliant on the whims of autocratic governments could be problematic. I mean, after all, uh, a lot of countries around the world are, are feeling uh, the pain from President Trump's decision to restrict exports of PPE uh, just last week. But uh, if we're going to uh, make these decisions, make these calls and, and have a national discussion and figure out what makes sense, we need to rely on the same data. There's, there are a lot of different data going around, a lot of different misinterpretations of, of the data. So I would just recommend, there have been several reports that have come out. I would recommend that when you see a report and it calls something medical supply imports, see what it covers and what it doesn't cover. Uh, make sure that there's a footnote in there that explains the methodology that was used because it makes a big difference. Um, anyway, I think at this point, I'll turn it over to Simon to talk about, I think he's going to talk about export controls, uh, uh, export restrictions right off the bat. So thanks a lot, Simon. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, so I'm going to start off uh, with export restrictions, sort of carries over nicely, I think, uh, from what you were talking about. And then I'm going to move on to uh, a topic that I don't know where it fits, but I'll, I'll try to jam it in there anyway. So in the normal trade debate, um, we at Cato, I think, get a little frustrated because uh, everyone looks at, or not everyone, but, but many people, people in the establishment, um, economic nationalists look at imports as bad and exports as good. And the, the focus, the emphasis is always on, well, how do we increase exports? That's gonna make us better off. And we try to push back against that and say, no, you know what, actually imports are good. Um, that's really one of the, the, the primary benefits of trade is the imports we get to consume. This pandemic has, has turned the debate on its head. And suddenly, as you, uh, as you mentioned, many countries, although not necessarily the United States, are, are, are lowering tariffs on imports so that they can get more of the medical supplies that they need. But at the same time, they're restricting exports um, because they're, they're concerned about losing control over uh, you know, vital medical supplies or even food in some cases. And so when I first uh, blogged about this um, a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the day to show that there were about 54 countries uh, who had restricted exports. And I think as of yesterday, we're, we're over 70, maybe around 75 countries 
have imposed some sort of export control. The, uh, the, the quantity of countries is interesting, but to me, the, the quality here is a little more important. What exactly are you talking about when you're talking about an export control? Is it, is it a ban on all exports? Is it a mild restriction? Um, or is it more just monitoring, um, just you know, trying to keep track of, of where all the products are? You know, are they in your country? Are they being sent somewhere else? Um, and, and, to, and to me, that, that, that matters a lot. So what I'm gonna do now is just talk briefly about sort of the big three players here. So we got 75 countries, can't go through them all. Uh, the EU, China, and the US to, to see what they've been doing. And, and so this is sort of our, our explanation of the problem. And then later uh, we'll get into um, some solutions, how to deal with this. So, uh, so starting off with the EU, um, they, they went first here with uh, announcing they were gonna have some sort of export control and they took a lot of criticism for it. Uh, the EU has been holding itself out as a defender of the global trading system, and people were saying, look, the, the reality here doesn't match your uh, open free trade rhetoric. Here you are imposing these export controls. And I think that the, the European Commission uh, officials sort of you know, took that to heart and said, all right, you know, we, we need to clarify what we're doing. So just yesterday, yesterday they put out a new draft regulation that seems to narrow the scope of their export restrictions. Um, it, it's restricted to only uh, to masks as opposed to all uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, and they're going to inject some new transparency into it. So that's good. And they say, look, this is really just about monitoring and the proper allocation of these products around the world. So that's certainly good to hear. Um, I, I, you know, I felt that was a bit reassuring. Uh, one of the issues with the EU, though, is uh, the EU is a complicated entity. Um, a lot of the, the control is still with the member states. Um, so this isn't so much the EU doing things as sort of um, guiding how the member states act and monitoring what they're doing. Um, so so we, what we're going to have to do, I think, is watch carefully how this is implemented by the, the member states. Uh, the next big player here is China. Um, China's gone through you know, sort of different waves of this whole crisis. You know, they were the first to get hit, and at that time they were buying up all the medical supplies they could. Um, they have sort of passed through the worst stages, and now they're out there um, shipping some of their, their uh, PPEs, medical supplies abroad, and they are, I think, trying to use that to sort of uh, help their reputation. Um, one of the things that's happened, though, is some of the, the, the products they've exported were, were seem to be as pretty low quality, and uh, they were getting criticized for that. You know, you're sending us this stuff and it doesn't work. Um, and so what they did to, to deal with that is put some, um, uh, some conditions, some, uh, some conditions on, on Chinese companies who, who export these products that, that make sure these products have to be certified, they meet international standards, that they're approved domestically. Um, that is probably for the best, but there, there have been concerns that this is actually China's way of imposing somewhat something like an export ban or at least a strong restriction. Um, you know, over the, the coming weeks, I think we'll, we'll get a better sense of, of what this really is, what this means, how restrictive it actually looks in practice. And then finally, that takes us to the United States. Uh, the U.S. was a little late to the party here in terms of export restrictions, but they, they're coming on strong. Um, there was some reports of, of badgering by the Trump administration of the, the company 3M uh, trying to prevent some of their exports to, to Canada and Latin America. And it looks like 3M was able to push back against that and say, look, we've got to be able to you know, get, get these products to our customers who need them. Um, what we've seen since then, though, is a new U.S. regulation, a temporary final rule is how it's described. 
uh, basically under which Customs and Border Protection will delay, will detain shipments of PPEs and FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, will then make a decision about whether they can be exported or whether we need them here. Uh, there are a lot of concerns about this. Um, FEMA doesn't have a lot of experience uh, with this sort of thing. Usually it's the Commerce Department, the State Department who does this. Um, there's that, it's not clear how much transparency there will be with the process. Uh, Bloomberg just reported yesterday that there were some uh, a number of calls uh, between uh, exporters, uh, companies, uh, and, and FEMA um, and trying to clarify how this is going to work. And, and there's some, some internal guidance that's been put out and exports will be allowed to go to Canada and Mexico and 3M will be allowed to export. But we're going to have to watch this closely. Again, like, like with China and like with the EU, how does this play out over the coming weeks and how much does this actually restrict exports? So um, that's the export restriction problem. Let me just quickly mention one other, which is that we're all stuck inside right here. And what we we would all love to see so that we could get back out again is a vaccine. We would all feel much safer if we were, uh, we had that, that protection from this virus. And so how do we get a vaccine? Well, the traditional way we do that, uh, the traditional way we give people an incentive to invent vaccines is to give them a temporary monopoly on, on the sale of what they invented, this is a, a patent. Um, there are problems with patents, though. Uh, they lead to high prices. They lead to lots of litigation about the scope of the patent rights. Um, and so it, it's not clear that patents are the right way to get us to a vaccine. Um, and when we get to the solution part, I'm going to put out some alternatives. Let me stop there and turn it over to, to Inu, who's going to talk about some regulatory issues. Hey, Simon and Inu. Uh, if, if I could just interject, I think this might be a good point to, to, to do that, because at the outset, of, I didn't mention to people that we're inviting questions in the chat box. Uh, and there's a question that's that's kind of right on target for what you were just talking about, Simon, that comes from uh, William Goodson. And he asks, does the federal government have the authority to block companies from sending the manufacturing of important medical supplies overseas? Does the U.S. have the authority to keep manufacturers from selling supplies overseas we need during future epidemics. And as you're thinking about that answer, just a reminder, feel free to, uh, to ask, uh, ask any questions and uh, we'll do our best to field them. Simon. Yeah. Um, my vague sense of this, and I can't say I have studied this carefully, so uh, this, this answer, you know, I you know, sort of double check it, and I'll, I'll, I'll look at it as well later, is that um, they have invoked a number of sort of, uh, you know, emergency style statutes. And I think it's the something related to the Defense Production Act. So when you look at the FEMA regulation, the temporary final rule that they put out where they say, we are going to do these things, um, that they cite to, to various statutes that they think give them, uh, they, think, they think gives FEMA the, the authority to do it. Um, I have not heard anybody question that. You know, I, when when I saw the rule, I, that I, that question did occur to me. Are you, did they have the authority to do it? I saw they were citing the various statutes. I didn't see anybody weighing in to say, no, 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 they, this is going too far. They don't have the authority to do it. Um, I think that the administration of it will certainly, um, you know, be subject to to, to challenge. You know, if, if we don't have, if it's applied in an arbitrary way, there are certain general statutes that that apply to um, agency implementation uh, of of statute of, of particular statutes. So you have like the Administrative Procedures Act um, that 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 we, that you know sort of guides or oversees how agencies um, implement uh, implement statutes. So so I think my my sense is. They can do something like this uh, when when there's an emergency of the sort we have now. 
um, but they're, 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 they're still subject to, to certain constraints. Um, there are still opportunities to, to challenge their application of these statutes in court. Uh, but again, I haven't heard anybody say, no, they don't have the authority to do, do, do this thing. Uh, and, you know, in an emergency like this, you know, the, the, the power of the, the government is broader than normal, but obviously not unlimited, as, as we you know, heard recently from President Trump. You know, we, we know he does not have total authority, uh, but he does have more now than he would in ordinary times. If, if I just may add to that, Simon, I mean, I, I'm afraid that Congress has been a bit sloppy over the years in, in granting too much authority to the president uh, under the uh, IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. The president is authorized to do a lot of things, and I, I suspect that he'd be authorized to do exactly uh, what was framed in this question uh, by William Goodson. Um, anyway, I, uh, Inu, I guess we can turn it over to you now. Sorry for the interruption. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how regulatory differences can act as a barrier uh, to trade. When we think about the debate over trade liberalization, it tends to focus on tariffs and other forms of protectionism, including domestic regulations used for protectionist intent. But regulations can have a negative impact on trade, uh, even if they're not crafted for protectionist purposes. So regulatory barriers uh, can arise when governments regulate without recognizing how their actions relate to regulation and production abroad. This can lead to what's called regulatory divergence between countries, such as different vehicle crash tests, for example, in different markets, even though both tests accomplish the same thing, making sure that the vehicle is safe. And the same thing can be said for things like medicines and pharmaceutical products, for example. When such products are manufactured, they are tested in the country that they're made. But if they're going to be exported, they're usually tested again uh, by the place that it's being sent to, even if it's made to that market specifications. So products are often tested twice uh, before they're cleared for sale. As a result, producers around the world have to contend with a complex and burdensome set of rules in order to sell their products to other countries. Now, one could ask why these barriers exist to begin with, and uh, it's actually just simple because what we have are systems in place in which countries regulate on their own in silos. Uh, most of the time, regulators aren't thinking about what other production processes are going on in other parts of the world. They're not thinking often about supply chains uh, and the way that their rules will affect other jurisdictions. And in addition to that, countries sometimes have their own objectives. They have their own tastes and preferences uh, and their own way of thinking about how to make rules. And those minor differences can actually have a large impact. So for example, uh, one of the most famous regulatory disputes, uh, a 1979 uh, European Court of Justice case between France and Germany uh, called the Cassis de Dijon decision, uh, was a really interesting example of differences in preferences. France at this time wanted to sell its liqueur, uh, Cassis de Dijon, to Germany. Uh, French liqueur contains 13% uh, alcohol content, whereas German liqueur contains 25% alcohol content. And the Germans said, you, you can't sell this on our market. That's not liqueur. Well, the court essentially ruled that while these two countries could maybe never agree uh, what constituted liqueur, uh, and they could never agree to social and cultural tastes being the same, uh, what they could agree to was the fact that they satisfied the basic health and safety requirements of both jurisdictions, and therefore should be able to be sold on either market. So this was the birth of what underpins uh, the way that the European single market works today. Uh, and, and it essentially allows uh, products to move freely through those markets. But I'd like to point out that 
this issue is often bigger than just taste and preferences. Uh, it also has to do with consumer safety. And this is a, a really sensitive topic for a lot of jurisdictions. And when we're thinking about things like medicines, uh, the science involved in how we apply uh, the safety protocols, and when we think about risk assessments with experimental drugs, for instance, uh, new vaccines uh, that haven't been fully tested yet. Uh, so we have to think, keep that in mind uh, when we're looking at the approval of products. And this is sort of why we have differences in these uh, processes. Inu, do, uh, do you want to get into maybe a discussion of the solution there? Or, or Simon, did you want to talk about a different problem first? I, th I think all the problems are, are, I think we've put all our problems out there. Maybe it's <laughs> time to get to get to the solutions. Whoever wants to go first is, is, is fine. Uh, well, you know, sure, I'm going through I, some I of these questions in. here. And Go ahead, Ina. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I can continue on a little bit with talking about the regulatory barriers themselves and, and what we can do to remove them. Uh, I think that often we, we think about cooperation, but the first thing is that getting rid of regulatory divergence first begins at home. Uh, it begins with our regulators looking at these differences, uh, finding ways to make it easier for products uh, that are innovative and new to enter our, our market safely. Uh, so for example, if a small business in, in Canada or South Korea develops a COVID-19 test kit that's uh, much more efficient than, than what we have, uh, than, than the FDA approved kit, that should be allowed into our market. And we should have a way to expedite its entry into our market as quickly as possible. Now, historically, uh, we don't really take these efforts on our own. Uh, we tend to engage in, in cooperative uh, efforts where we can with other countries. And there's usually three main mechanisms by which we do that. Uh, the first would be to, to harmonize. So we, we take the, the same regulatory approach. That, that's quite difficult to do as the, the European case showed with the Cassis case uh, that we don't really agree. We have a lot of different tastes and, and, and that variety is good and we should be allowed to maintain that variety. Uh, but this is why we have other approaches such as mutual recognition where countries essentially make an agreement uh, that certain domestic authorities uh, can conduct the tests uh, at home uh, to make sure that it meets the requirements of the country that it's sending it to. Now this requires an agreement on which authorities can do those tests and this can take a very long time to negotiate. Um, there's another type of agreement which is called an equivalence agreement or mutual recognition of equivalence, which is essentially an agreement between countries that acknowledges that the regulatory systems achieve the same objectives and operate with similar standards and therefore a product that meets the requirements of their country uh, can be sold uh, in the other country as well. So organic produce is an example here because there's a lot of similar rules uh, with organics across many jurisdictions. And in fact, the, the United States and the EU have an equivalence agreement on organic produce uh, that's been in effect for several years now that allows uh, a USDA organic logo to be sold in, in the European market. Now, um, a more relevant example to what's happening today is um, a mutual recognition agreement that the European Union and the United States uh, completed actually last year on pharmaceutical products. Uh, this was considered a very big achievement. It took many, many years to negotiate. It first was signed in 1998, if you can believe it. Uh, and then talks picked up not until 2014, though, in earnest. Uh, and when 2017, we really actually had uh, some implementation of that agreement. And it was considered a big achievement because essentially allows uh, EU and 
and US uh, inspection regimes to rely on each other for human medicines uh, in their own territories. And so you avoid the duplicative tests. And this makes kind of sense when you think about it, because drug manufacturing is globalized as a process. We should be able to find ways to accept the safety tests of trusted markets. And since inspections can cost upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars for individual companies uh, and for governments doing uh, inspections as well, this could be significant cost savings. And in fact, the European Union uh, estimated that in 2019, with the implementation of, of this agreement, 100 inspections alone uh, were waived. Um, so one thing to keep in mind, though, is that this was a limited agreement. It's a pharmaceutical products, it's certain pharmaceutical products. It excludes things like vaccines, uh, like plasma-derived products, and these are things that are, are pertinent now in our minds. Uh, so I think that the two parties should ramp up efforts to add these items to the list of accepted products as quickly as possible. Uh, but in addition to this, in 2018, uh, the United States and EU started bilateral talks, and part of that uh, was on a new agreement on medical devices. And I would say the urgency to make progress on this uh, is clear at this time. And this is a good opportunity for us to work together uh, to liberalize trade uh, in this sector too, as US sales of medical devices make up 43% uh, of, the, of the world market and EU sales make up 29%. So it would be a significant liberalization effort. But I do want to emphasize that we don't even need to focus on negotiating agreement at all if we don't want to. In, in times of crisis, it's very difficult to sit down and negotiate uh, recognition agreements because it can take a very long time. And, and governments may not have the capacity to do this right now, given everything that they're facing. Uh, so we should think of a way to lift these barriers temporarily uh, and in the long term permanently with trusted markets. Congress could, for instance, pass legislation that directs the FDA uh, to accept medical device and pharmaceutical inspections from trusted jurisdictions. For example, the United States could waive all inspections of pharmaceutical treatments of COVID-19 from trusted jurisdictions like the EU, Japan, uh, Korea, and Canada. So there's a lot of room for unilateral action here, and this could be temporary, uh, but we should honestly make an effort to negotiate a permanent solution to these regulatory barriers for when we're facing future pandemics. Um, and, and Simon, if you want to add on the medical uh, innovation here, you can. But I was actually going to transition to um, cooperation on export restrictions. Um, so yeah, let me just pick up on that theme. And, and I, I would say that that even uh, us free trading globalists at the, at the Cato Institute probably recognize that in this in the time of this pan pandemic, some nationalist instincts are understandable. Um, you're responsible to your own citizens. You need to get them all the the medical supplies they need. However. Um, unilateral bans and excessive restrictions are, are a misguided way to do that. So everyone around the world uh, needs this stuff right now, and hoarding through export restrictions uh, is only going to get you so far. I would say that the focus really needs to be on everyone trying to increase production of the, the various medical supplies, um, and then coordinating with other governments on how to get it where it needs to go. Um, monitoring of exports is, is fine if it helps it in that regard, uh, but 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 you know anything beyond that uh, really can be a problem. Uh, we've seen this virus, the impact of the virus spread from you know China to Northern Italy to New York and Louisiana. Um, there's always somebody who's going to be worst hit with it, and, and countries, governments around the world need to be communicating with each other um, as, as to who needs it. And generally speaking, I, I think we've seen that uh, so far. I think the announcement of these export restrictions um, is worrying. It causes concerns. Um, I, I think that we just have to watch them carefully and, and push back if it looks like they're being used uh, to, as, as in, a, to, in a manner that's too strict. 
um, and, and try to convince governments that, that you know, working together uh, is really a, a better approach to this. Um, let me stop there and just check in with you, Dan, in terms of time. You know, where do we want to go with this? I, I can talk about the, the patent issue, but maybe we have uh, questions we want to get to. Okay. Uh, that's, that's a good idea. There are a lot of excellent questions here, and we could probably spend the rest of our, of our time trying to address them. I'm, I'm looking at the ones that might lead into some of the solutions that we were planning to talk about. So um, let, me, let me address or try to respond to a question from Akkad Ronan. He says, Dan, you mentioned a need for federal stockpiling of critical supplies. I take it then that you are in favor of restarting the federal mohair stockpile. Well, <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, um, I, I think one of the biggest challenges uh, that we're facing in this quest of protectionists to repatriate supply chains is to d defend what happens in these, you know, these one-off sorts of situations. Um, I, I do think pandemics are, are, are going to be increasingly more likely going forward, uh, and that if we were to, to, to repatriate our supply chains, we would be poorer for it, and uh, we would have less access to, to products that we would need, less, less access to markets. So I think one way to push back on those saying that we can't depend on foreign producers is to continue to depend on foreign producers as well as domestic producers and to store some stuff away for a rainy day. Now, some of my colleagues here at Cato uh, are a little skeptical of the idea there is a domestic stockpile. I'm not exactly sure how it works or doesn't work. There's been some disputes about who is entitled to, uh, to, to what products in, in the stockpile, who distributes them. I would like to come up with a plan to um, have a sort of a private sector driven stockpile that is administered by companies like FedEx or Amazon, logistics companies or Hospitals of America, you know, companies that know how to deal with these kinds of products and know how to account for large amounts of, of uh, inventory. Uh, and then the states would be sort of the, um, the customers when, when we come to a time of need. Uh, you know, I, I, ideally, we wouldn't need to do that. Uh, but if it could be incentivized and, and businesses would participate in it without being coerced, uh, it might be uh, have serve as a double whammy in the, in the sense that it would uh, help in the argument uh, to push back against uh, these nationalist inclinations. Um, there were an another of a lot of excellent questions here. One of which I wanted to flag uh, for uh, for either of you, um, Simon. Uh, where did it go? I should have done a better job of flagging this. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, actually, Simon, Simon, why, why don't you move into uh, what you were going to talk about while I while I find uh, the question that, that yes, I wanted to ask. So, so this issue of, of vaccines, like I said, you know, we'd all really like one so we could get get back out there and get life back to normal. Um, in the past, uh, you know, some vaccine inventors um, have just given them away. Famously, the, the polio vaccine was just sort of put out there. You know, wasn't wasn't patented, and you know, uh, you know monopoly prices charged for it, um, and, and that's admirable. And, and anybody who's working on a vaccine right now, you know, I hope they consider that. I mean, I think if the the, the Bill Gates Foundation were to, you know, if it was something they were funding, they might give it away. Um, you know, if you just if you come up with a, a, a 
coronavirus vaccine in your garage, you know, please consider uh, giving it away and then setting up a GoFundMe account and we'll all give you lots of money and you'll, you'll, you'll do all right. Um, but I think we, we can't count on that approach. So it, I think it's worth thinking about other options um, than, than, than patents. And I think the alternative that uh, many economists have, have put out there for a while, just sort of in the general context of patents, is the idea of, of, of a prize. So, you know, the government um, offers this, this large chunk of money, this large sum of money, um, and if somebody invents something great, uh, then, then they just get that money, but then the invention is just out there for, for everyone to use instead of being um, under the monopoly control of this one individual or, or company for, for 20 years. And I think that in the, in the context of the coronavirus, um, it, it may, maybe, it's, maybe this is a particularly good, uh, you know, opportunity to, to try this. Um, you know, as, from what I know about vaccines, pharmaceutical companies, you know, it's not the most exciting, most profitable uh, drug for them. They, they make more out of sort of chronic disease drugs where they can just keep feeding them people for, for, for years and years. Uh, so, so maybe we don't have the sufficient incentive in general for vaccines, although hopefully everybody is feeling the incentive right now for this one. So, so I think what, what you can imagine is that we calculate um, what do we expect the inventor of a coronavirus vaccine to, to get over the useful life of the patent. Um, let's take some uh, portion of, of that expected profit. So half of it, all of it, double, whatever, whatever the big chunk of money is, and then sort of put it out there and say, all right, anybody who comes up with a coronavirus vaccine, you're going to get this money. And we don't have to stop at just one. Um, there may be, you know, maybe the first one comes along, but then somebody comes along with a better one. So anybody who comes up with some, uh, you know, some effective coronavirus vaccine get, gets a, a big chunk of money. Look, we're spending trillions of dollars right now. I, I'd be perfectly happy to spend a billion or two or three or five on, on somebody coming up with a coronavirus vaccine. Um, let me qualify all this by saying, look, I, I'm not the, the world's leading patent expert or, or vaccine expert, and there are a lot of details here to work out and understand that. But I, I have looked closely enough at the, the patent system and, and to, to get a sense that um, there are big problems there as well. Uh, there's not a whole lot of, of evidence that this is the most effective way of encouraging in, inventions, getting them to the market, and it's especially with the sort of narrow category uh, of, of issues with, with vaccines for sort of a, you know, a one-time, I mean, hopefully one-time disease that comes along. I mean, it's not clear that patents are the best way to do it. So I think it is worth considering other options. It's worth putting prizes on the table. It's been in, the, there's been a debate among economists for a while now. Uh, maybe this is the chance to, to, to get it into the broader public debate. Is there an alternative a way to get people incentives to, to develop the vaccines that we need? That's excellent. I think, you know, the pandemic has given us time to to think deeply about things and to brainstorm. And I, and I think that idea uh, has legs. Um, there's a, an excellent question here from Paco Campos. And, you know, it's about the WTO and if you were the WTO director general. And I think, you know, we, we're all familiar with the WTO. Simon worked at the WTO for uh, a while in the secretariat's office. Um, Inu has done a lot of work there, um, I, but I think Inu is going to get this question simply because she has a paper that came out uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday on, on, spe on special and differential treatment and how to define developing countries in the WTO. So she has she's in the mode of recommending reforms for the WTO. So the question here is, if you were the WTO director general, what would be your message to members and to your top priority for the organization at this time? How can the WTO preempt the increased use 
of export restrictions and regulatory barriers in a post-COVID-19 world. You want to take a swing at that, uh, Ina? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. And I think if, if I were uh, the Director General, I would say that it's important to remember that the current crisis we're facing doesn't stop at our borders. It's a global crisis. It requires a global solution as well. Uh, we should be cooperating at an international level regularly uh, to make sure that vital supplies of medicines and equipment uh, are not being restricted with export controls. Now, the WTO can play an important role here, and it has already set up a system uh, where countries can notify uh, when they are restricting exports and the WTO itself is tracking uh, additional measures countries are taking that haven't been notified. So I think that's a really important thing to do, uh, especially because when you think about it, over half of WTO members are developing countries uh, and they rely heavily on imports uh, for critical medical products uh, to fight COVID-19. So we have recent data that came out uh, from World Bank Economists uh, that has shown that for 20 developing countries uh, with the highest numbers of COVID-19 cases right now, five countries account for 80% of their total imports. That's the European Union, the United States, China, Japan, and Korea. Now, as Simon mentioned, uh, some of these countries have export uh, controls in place, and that should be pretty alarming because that directly impacts the ability of these developing countries to uh, deal with this situation that they're facing now, and it could be quite dire. Uh, so we need to see what countries are, are doing to ex apply export restrictions, what kind of restrictions they're applying, how, how big they are, how targeted they are, uh, and, and apply concerted efforts to get them to lift these restrictions. And I think the WTO's organization can act uh, as a way to, to peer pressure uh, countries and, and to show them, hey, you know, you, you have to lead by example and make sure that, that you're not harming others uh, in, in your attempt to uh, essentially hoard a lot of these supplies. But I think there's, a, there's another aspect of which the WTO can help when there are shortages, right? So you can have a notification system in place uh, where countries could notify the WTO when they need certain equipment or certain supplies and can't get them. So the WTO already has uh, a good online system uh, for where countries can notify things and we can create one for something like this as well. And this would be a really low cost way actually to get individual businesses and, and governments uh, the ability to coordinate their approach for where to send uh, these things uh, abroad. So for instance, there's a lot of companies right now that are switching their production to PPEs. Uh, and if there was a notification system in place like this, you could basically have a company uh, log on, uh, see what countries are in most in need of something and ship directly to them without having to go through the middlemen of their own government. Uh, and so this would create a lot of opportunities to have the resources allocated most efficiently. Uh, so I think uh, that should be the priority of the WTO to make sure there's transparency and who's applying export restrictions to find ways to get these countries to relax these restrictions and also find ways to fill those shortages to help uh, companies get these products to places where that need them absolutely the most. Well, I think uh, Director General Acevedo now has uh, somebody to look over his shoulder to, Inu. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're ready for the WTO. Um, let, let me get to a question from about as far away from Washington as we, it, it can come. This is a question from uh, Wiki from Indonesia. And she's asking about something, Simon, you and Inu and I were talking about the other day. She's asking... Uh, here about food exports. She says, in the middle of countries imposing lockdowns all over the world and some major food exporting countries, i.e. Vietnam for rice, have issued export restrictions. Will our food chain be broken? 
especially in the sensitive and panicked era. So maybe talk a little bit about uh, the, 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 the movement of labor and how that is impeding harvests and how that's going to possibly lead to a food shortage and uh, what that means for trade and food. Yeah, um, food shortages are a scary thing. Look, I mean, a toilet paper shortage, yeah, that's frustrating, uh, but we can handle that, that we can figure out ways. <laughs> a food shortage, that's one where I, I you know, I start to then, uh, you know, think about whether I need to build a bunker um, and, you know, is society about to collapse? And we, we've heard, uh, we, ha we have these, we, I talk about export restrictions on medical supplies, but there have also been a lesser number, but still some of notifications of, of export restrictions on food as countries start to worry about whether they'll have enough for, uh, for their own people. Um, and, and as you hinted at, Dan, uh, there have been uh, a number of reports in, in, in wealthy countries, so in the United States and, and Europe, that, well, you know, our, our, our domestic food supply is kind of in jeopardy here. Um, well, one reason is you know, sometimes they, they, these countries bring in workers from poorer countries um, to, to help, you know, actually produce the food, to, to pick the strawberries, uh, you know, to do the work. And that's happened in, in the United States. It's happening in Europe. Um, people come from Eastern Europe, um, haven't been able to get there. And so, so that's a problem for producing food. Uh, there have also been reports of uh, coronavirus outbreaks, um, it, you know, in, in, in the workers in um, various you know, food production facilities. So there's, a, I think, a pork uh, factory in South Dakota that was just hit with that. Um, so I think that's worth worrying about. I mean, it's not time to, to, to panic and, you know, go stock up on firearms so we can protect, protect our supplies. Uh, from our, our neighbors who are going to be, you know, sort of breaking into our house. Um, but but we, I think governments need to to think about, you know, how they're going to deal with this. You know, if we can't get the workers in place to produce the food, uh, we're all going to be in a bit of trouble. Um, and so going back to what we're talking about, metal supplies, you know, are export restrictions the answer? And I would say, you know, for the same reasons, no. Uh, the, the, the key is to work together uh, to cooperate, to make sure that, that production stays where it needs to be. And then if, if somebody out there is suffering critical shortages to, to get the food to them. I mean, I just, I, I, there, I understand the instinct that like, you know, just take whatever you can get to make sure that it doesn't, you know, get out of your hands and somebody else gets it. Um, but I think on balance, we're going to be better off if we, we work together to identify, you know, who, who's really uh, needs things the most and who needs help, uh, because someday it might be us. And if, we, if we're not there to help others when they need it, they're not going to be there to help us when, when we need it. I don't think we know um, who's going to get hit by this, you know, which, which countries, which regions of which countries. So, uh, so this, this is a real problem that's worth worrying about. Um, and, and dealing with now so that, you know, in, in a month, you know, I think we learn from the, the virus itself, you know, take things seriously as, as right away. Don't wait a month and see how it's playing out. So, so don't wait a month to see how the food production problem is playing out. Let's make sure right now that producers in all countries around the world um, have, have the workers they need to, to get the, the quantities of food produced and then to get them, to distribute, get them distributed um, to the people who need them. Good, good, good points, no doubt. Uh, Simon, let me let me keep you on here to, to, to go to another question. I think Inu would probably uh, be able to provide some quality response here too. But let's let me start with you. It's from uh, start with you, Simon. It's from Suyash Verma, and it comes on via Twitter. And it's a great question, and it's, look, it's the kind of question that I think you may be prone to uh, engaging in for weeks and weeks on Twitter with uh, with with Suyash. Uh, but Suyash asks, in in light of COVID. 
COVID does the WTO agreement on the application of sanitary and phytosanitary measures, the SPS agreement, require any amendments or changes? And would this scenario affect the interpretation of Article 5 of the SPS? If yes, how? So whatever kind of detail you want to get into on that, but uh, that's, that's clearly an yeah. important question. Uh, it'll be easy to get bogged down in this this issue, and, and maybe we should um, stick to a, a Twitter discussion uh, to really get into the details. I mean, my general take on the SPS agreement is that, yeah, maybe it's not perfectly crafted, and I understand what the, the drafters were, were, were thinking about at the time, but we, we may, we, we may want to introduce a little more flexibility into it, and that these requirements that you know, food safety regulations have to be based on science are, just, are difficult to enforce. And we should maybe focus more on protectionism as the problem rather than regulations that are not science-based because that's just not something that an international organization can guarantee um, in the way that WTO rules try to guarantee things. So, um, so does COVID-19 then, you know, sort of prompt us to do, to, to go in that direction of, of rethinking things? Um, I, I, I haven't seen anything specific about COVID-19 that pushes me in that direction at, at this point. I mean, that you know, SPS agreement sort of narrowly targets sanitary and phytosanitary measures. And, and, and clearly that, you know, there, there are implications of COVID-19 for that. But I mean, I think the COVID-19 problem is sort of a, a broader one that goes beyond the SPS agreement. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that COVID-19 in particular pushes me to, to rethink the SPS agreement, but maybe that's just because I was already rethinking it. Um, it, it doesn't really change the way I, I was rethinking it. Maybe it gives me sort of more you know, ammunition, more examples to, to point to, to say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that some of these provisions uh, really, really work there. You're just asking too much of governments. Um, these are sort of good guiding principles. Uh, maybe they don't work as obligations uh, that are supposed to be enforced in dispute settlements. So that, that's that's my take on it. But I am happy to you know spend uh, you know hours on Twitter discussing it further. <laughs> well, uh, Inu, if you don't want to follow up with that, I, I have another question, which is just custom made for you. I think Jerry from Twitter uh, must have read your paper or read your mind uh, because he asks: Should should the WTO redefine the definition of what is a developing country? and the benefits they are entitled. Uh, this will avoid the distortion and abuses of economies like China. I, I, I seem to recall you working hard for a long time on a, on a paper that just came out on Monday that answers that question. Yeah, thanks, and, and, and great question. It's a, a timely issue, especially uh, today, uh, when we're looking at trying to ramp up negotiations in, in various areas, such as uh, fisheries and e-commerce, and also just dealing with, with the current crisis itself and thinking about what is a developing country. Now, the WTO does not define what this is. The process by which a country is considered developing in the WTO is by self-declaration. So a country is developing when it says it is. And this has created a a problem in negotiations for, for many, many years, and, and this predates Trump, uh, that essentially what you have is a system in place where you have one set of rules uh, for, for one group of countries, another set of rules for, for another group of countries. And their blanket uh, exemptions is how most of it is treated, but there's a lot of variation uh, in how uh, developing countries are treated within, within WTO in terms of the specific rules. But the big issue is that essentially what we have 
is this system in which a big country like China is considered developing uh, in sectors where it actually has a large market share. And this is something we need to consider. So when we're looking at negotiations in the future, uh, one of the recommendations we have in our paper is that what we need to do is to think about, you know, sector by sector, product by product, if you are a major market in that sector, you are not a developing country for all intents and purposes. Like at that point, uh, you should not be benefiting from special and differential treatment. I don't think there's a need to give countries a certain categorical uh, uh, naming in, in, in this way. So you don't need to say it's a developing country or not, but I think by negotiation, by certain products in certain sectors, you can decide. So it has to be far more data-driven uh, in terms of how we do our negotiations at the WTO and. To make sure that countries that are uh, major market movers uh, in certain product categories do lift their weight when it comes to applying the rules, that they are bound by the same high standards as developed countries as well. Uh, and I would recommend uh, taking a look at, at Inu's and, and, and Jim Backus's paper on this. It goes into a, a lot of the details and uh, I think it's going to probably be before the WTO uh, various committees uh, because it's uh, it's right on target that paper. Um, there's a question from from Brett Fortnum, which uh, which I think I, I will try to answer. Uh, he asks, do you believe the pandemic will lead to more companies diversifying their supply chains out of China? Have Trump administration policies given businesses the certainty they would need to decide to repatriate to the U.S.? Well, look, Brett, I, I think. Uh, companies were already diversifying outside of China uh, for 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 several years. There, you know, as as wages have risen in China, it's it's uh, caused uh, recalculations of cost comparisons, and there's been movement to other Southeast Asian countries. With the flare up of the trade war, uh, which has injected a lot of uncertainty into how U.S. companies will be treated in China and how the United States is going to treat imports from China. Uh, that that raises the cost, the, you know, the uncertainty associated with that investment raises the cost of of staying in China. Uh, the pandemic adds a, 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 another reason, and uh, you know, considering the debate about the, the you know the politicization of where the uh, uh, virus originated, um, I think that we're likely to see more companies move out as well. You got to you got to remember, companies that invest around the world. They invest for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's not just chasing low wages or lax environmental standards like some people like to like to suggest. Uh, it is tapping into the, the appropriate workforce that has a, the right skills, producing for the right market. It has a lot to do with the political climate, the business climate, regulations, taxes, and all of these uh, these factors weigh on the decision of where to invest and whether or not to repatriate. Certainly, I think some American companies that have come back to U.S. shores uh, during the Trump administration uh, have come back with the expectation that they would be inoculated from uh, any more Trump broadsides uh, or be rewarded by Trump in some other way for bring, coming back to the United States. And, and that, unfortunately, is a factor in these investment decisions as well. You know, as government grows and as the president uh, tries to take more control over trade policy, uh, there's more incentive to invest in lobbying in Washington than there is to invest in, uh, in, in factories and in research and development. And I think we, we're seeing that. And that is going to be one of the obstacles we're going to need to contend with as we try to uh, 
uh, get the economy going again after this. Um, let's see. Uh, Enu or Simon, do you guys have any sort of closing remarks? I think we're sort of at the end here, and uh, I haven't been able to scan through the questions and find a particular one for, for, for either of you. Do, have you guys seen any of the questions that you would like to answer, or do you want to make some closing remarks about the theme of our afternoon? I don't know that I've seen uh, any questions. I, I guess I'll, I'll close maybe on maybe on a positive note. I think it's a positive note. Um, so you know, there's a lot of sort of fear about trade and how trade is falling um, it, during the pandemic as the as the economy is collapsing. But I think what we're also seeing is um, new ways to trade. And here we are online, sort of trading in a sense with, with the world. And I think that the opportunities for online trade are, are really getting noticed now. And it's been, it's. Been, it's been happening for 20 years, sort of the slow movement. And I've written in the past about online education and online uh, medical advice. Um, and, and as people are, are you know, sort of forced to, to figure out how to do those sorts of things, it may be that we finally see things like telemedicine take off, um, where you know, instead of having to go to these sort of germ-infested doctor's offices where we might get sick, maybe we can talk to a doctor online. And maybe we can talk to a doctor in a foreign country as well. You know, there's there's you know there, there's reasons or a number of reasons why you might want to um, you know go to a doctor outside of your country. And now maybe we'll have the opportunity. So it's going to take some uh, dealing with the regulatory barriers that get in the way of that uh, before it becomes reality. Uh, but this might push us in that direction. And so you know, in, in the end, we may see you know more trade or new forms of trade come out of this, and, and that is a, a positive, I think. Inu, any uh, last closing comments? Yeah, I would just add one thing that has been quite hopeful, uh, in, in my opinion, looking at what's been going on. I think it's it's easy to get disheartened by some of the, the government-led efforts uh, to, to deal with shortages uh, and, and just in general and trying to figure out what to do with this crisis. But we've seen a lot of individuals and businesses uh, really step up and, and really fill the gap that the government has left behind. And I'd like to say that, you know, when it comes to the PPE, we're seeing lots of innovation happening throughout this country, throughout the world. And and the more that we can do to allow uh, these individuals and businesses get their products to where it's needed, uh, that's going to be the way that we're going to have to deal with these sorts of problems in the future. So again, the solution is going to be a global solution. We have to stop thinking about uh, dealing with crises in the old way of the national government has to solve every problem that, that comes its way. That's that's not going to be the, the long-term solution to a crisis like this in the future. And right now, what we need to do immediately is to make sure that individuals and businesses can get their products to where they need to get them. And, and we should be facilitating that as much as possible. Amen. Well, I think we are going to have to stop here, but before I do that, let me just let you know that thank you very much for the questions. We were unable to get to all of them. Uh, I, I'm going to discuss with uh, the Cato team whether or not we're able to preserve those questions, and maybe uh, Simon and Nino and I can um, do a blog post or something in response to some of the questions that we didn't uh, address here today. This video will be available either later today or tomorrow for your viewing pleasure down the road. And uh, for now, I wish you the best and hope you, everybody stays safe. And thank you very much for joining us. See you.